Good morning. My name is Carol Ray, and it is good to be here. Amen? Amen. Good. The scripture this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. Would you please stand while I read the passage? And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girls saw him, and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself, and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Thanks so much, Carol. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is, as others have said this morning, it is so good to see your faces. It's good to be in this place. Glad you were able to make it. And encourage you to turn in your Bibles, if you could, to Mark chapter 14, if you're not already there. Mark chapter 14. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's my privilege and truly an honor to be able to open up the Word of God with and for you this morning in Mark chapter 14. As Dave mentioned, today really does begin a new, a new chapter for Disciples Church. It's a new season for us, a new time for us, all of those different things. And for a whole lot of reasons that we're going to get into this morning, this text, though it may seem unlikely or even strange for a first Sunday in a new place at a new time, really is an amazing declaration of the gospel, and so I'm excited to get into it. It's actually one of my personal favorite stories, and this time we get to look at it from the Mark account. So Mark chapter 14. As we've moved through the book of Mark and we've talked about not only the historical record that's kept for us and the declarations of the goodness and the grace of God, one of the other things that we've talked about is the fact that from a literature perspective, Mark is giving us a, perspe- is giving us a view into the person of Jesus Christ. We've said over and over and over again that Mark wants you to encounter, to come face to face, eye to eye with Jesus Christ. Jesus is undoubtedly as undoubtedly and explicitly the main character of this story. But if you had to pick the most significant supporting role in this book, you'd have to give it to the Apostle Peter. You can imagine Peter's life in really three distinct acts. There's that first act of his life that really isn't recorded for us, but we can imagine it. He grows up as a a boy in Galilee, as any Galilean boy. He would have followed his father into his occupation, so almost undoubtedly his father likewise would have been a fisherman. Peter grows up around the sea. He grows up learning this trade and this craft. And that part of his story is really relatively unknown to us. But the second act of his story is the piece that we get a picture into throughout the New Testament. 
And it begins, if you remember, with Jesus coming to the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Lake of Gennesaret, this place where Peter had been fishing. Jesus arrives there early one morning. He sees Peter and James and John out in the boat coming in, having having gathered no fish, having had a completely unsuccessful expedition. They're tired, they're worn out, they're weary. And Jesus approaches Peter and he says to him, you should cast off again, go out into the water again, and this time... Put your nets down on the other side of the boat. It seems undoubtedly like a fool's errand to Peter, James, and John. These men at this point in their life are probably in their late 20s, maybe approaching their early 30s. These are men who knew the sea well. They knew knew their occupation well. They didn't need the opinion of some passerby as to how better to do their job. But for some reason, they're motivated in this moment to listen to Jesus. And so, So they push off away from the sea, they drop their nets on the other side of the boat, and the catch that they haul in in that moment is so great that the boats themselves start to sink. They manage to make it back up to the shore, and as they approach shore, Peter falls to his feet before Jesus. He knows, even without knowing who Jesus is or what it is inherently that's different about him, he knows that there is something vastly different about this man. And at that very moment, Jesus says to him, you have been a fisherman your whole life, but I will make you a fisher of men. I have a whole different plan for your life, a plan you could never have imagined, you could never have scripted, you could never have brought into fruition on your own. And it's the beginning of that three-year journey with, with Jesus that we've been studying throughout the New Testament and really specifically in the book of Mark. And aside from Paul, Peter is probably my, probably my favorite character in the New Testament because he's really an analog for you and me. He's a stand-in for us. He's the guy who says and does things that we would foolishly, though well-intentioned, probably do in, in various situations. In Peter, we see the best and the worst of our own humanity. He's both aspirational and, and a cautionary tale at the same time. We see moments where Peter is insightful, In John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, at the peak of his earthly fame, Jesus then calls out to all those that are gathered and says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And perhaps unsurprisingly, John records for us that in that moment, a whole lot of people left Jesus. What is this bizarre language that this prophet, this, this rabbi is using here? And Jesus then turns to Peter and the others and he says, you likewise want to leave, don't you? And Peter's response is this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's conviction and sincerity and devotion and understanding that is unique Among the crowds of people that had gathered to worship Jesus, Peter alone makes this powerful declaration. And likewise, we see moments where Peter is headstrong. Jesus prophesies his own death, and and in doing so, Peter decides to pull him aside, to chide him, to correct him. You know, nobody wants to hear this language. What are you even talking about? If you're the Messiah, you, you can't be killed. That wouldn't be congruent with my own understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do. And do you remember what Jesus says to him in that moment? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, you talk about a pendulum swing in the life of Peter. One moment he's being, he's being encouraged for his understanding and his insight, and the next he's being called the devil. That's a pretty significant shift. 
And maybe the pinnacle of Peter's arc, at least in his second act, is just prior to the, uh, uh, this is now prior to the resurrection, Jesus asks him, who do people say that I am? And the answer comes back from the disciples, well, some say you're Moses, and some say you're Elijah, and some say you're the prophets. But Jesus asks again to Peter specifically, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds without hesitation, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one true God. We see in Peter in that moment all of the promise, all of the potential. He's got the leadership characteristics of boldness and courage, and he's able to string words together, and he's seemingly unintimidated by anything. This guy looks like he's going to be a key leader in the church. But if that particular moment is the pinnacle of Peter's life in the second act, this particular moment that we read about this morning, this moment is the worst. It's his low point. Having run away from the scene as Jesus was arrested, Peter now sits in the courtyard watching the trial of Jesus. He's sitting at the fire next to a bunch of guards. And as soon as Jesus has pronounced that he is, in fact, the Messiah, he has pronounced guilty, and those that are gathered there commence to beat him. And the wrestle that had been going on inside of Peter's heart and soul has now bubbled to the surface. We can see it in the story. He sits here watching the spectacle. He wants to be close to Jesus. He wants to be near him. He wants to help his friend. He wants to love his friend. But he's so scared of what it is that's going to happen to him that he ends up putting on display the words of Jesus in the garden. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And that leads us to verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know what, I neither, I neither know rather nor understand what you mean. Now, Peter here is sitting, and he's begun to watch the violence that's happening against his friend Jesus. He watches as the guards place a hood over Jesus' head. He watches as members of the Sanhedrin, the religious class, the rulers, these are the, the supposed godly men of the day, begin to walk up to Jesus and slap him and punch him and begin to beat his body. Blows are flying in from every direction, and on top of that, now the guards are getting into the mix, and they begin to mock him. If you're the Messiah, if you're the prophet, you tell me who just punched you. Jesus is doubled over in pain. His body is being beaten, and it's in this moment that this young woman approaches Peter. Not some brutish soldier, not some member of the guard, not some hulking figure, but a young girl of no social influence. Now, Peter's Peter's a blue-collar guy. He's lived a hard, scrabble life as a fisherman. You could imagine that he's still relatively young and therefore relatively fit, but here he is being intimidated by a young girl of low cultural status. And notice what it says. It says, she saw and looked. And Mark here is giving us an indication of what happened. This girl actually does a double take. She sees him, and then she looks at him. She recognizes there's something different about that guy. I recognize him. I know him from somewhere. The disciples, you understand, are distinctive. 
They're distinctive regionally for sure. They addressed according to the style of their home regions. They certainly maybe looked the part of their occupation. They'd been with Jesus for three years, so perhaps they even had an air about the way that they carried themselves. They were easily distinguishable. And so this woman approaches Peter and she says, you're the one who is with Jesus. And right at that moment, Peter is faced with another decision. And there's a lesson in this for all of us. All of us have a tendency to view ourselves as being on the right side of things. And whether it's our view of politics or culture or a particular debate or argument or, of course, and including our view of faith and religion. When it comes to our faith, we tend to hold our beliefs very tightly. We hold on to our principles. We have a willingness to defend what it is we believe one way or another, at least until there's a cost to holding those views. But when Christianity comes under attack, or Christian morals begin to be labeled as antiquated, or Christian beliefs are challenged as being bigoted, is your tendency to acquiesce to cultural pressure or to press ever more deeply into your Savior? See, without saying it, there's a question in this text that's being asked of you. Are you easily distinguishable as belonging to Jesus? Are your thoughts and your words and your actions and your attitudes salted with the gospel? Or is your desire, your natural inclination, your position by default, your defensive posture to conform your faith and to conform your Jesus into a mold that the world finds acceptable? And in doing so, to cause them to find no offense and no reason for concern in you. See, Peter, in this moment, knowing the truth and knowing what he believed and having been, been around right doctrine and even the person of Jesus Christ for the last three years, despite all of the information and everything he knew to be true, in this moment, Peter chose that latter position. And look at his response. I don't know him, and I don't even understand what you're saying. In this denial, there's really a double denial. I'm not even sure who you're talking about, and I certainly don't know him. In the second half of verse 68, he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. See, Peter is discomfited by the situation. He's made uneasy. Someone has called him out. Someone has recognized that there's something different about him. And in this moment, he's chosen to deny the Christ, to deny the Savior. A rooster even crows, which is the first half of the prophecy of Jesus, when he said that the rooster was going to crow twice just after Peter had denied him three times. And even upon hearing the crowing of the rooster, Peter in this moment is so in his head, he's so focused on himself, he's so focused on his own circumstance that it doesn't even register with him what he's just done. He has intentionally, purposefully chosen a sinful position in opposition to his Lord and his Savior, Jesus Christ. So he goes out into this gateway, this covered porch area to kind of get away from the crowds. He's getting a little bit nervous about what might happen. And 
Just then, verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, now the conversation's getting a little bit louder, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders began to say to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So a second accusation comes. Again, Peter denies in this moment that pressure is growing in its intensity. Now it's not just this servant girl, but it's those that are gathered around. Perhaps even the ears of the guards are beginning to perk up at hearing that this man has been associated with Jesus. And so he denies once again the Savior. And finally, the bystanders pick up on what the girl's saying, and they go, yeah, you're right, he is a Galilean. And they begin to call him. He's been caught in this moment. They say to him, we know you're a Galilean. We can hear it in your accent. We can see it in the way that you're dressed. Why else would a Galilean be right here, right now, if you weren't a friend of Jesus? He has been caught red-handed. His hand is in the cookie jar. He has been found out. And rather than owning up to what was true, rather than taking now this third opportunity to actually stand by his Savior. He begins to deny so strongly that he starts to invoke curses on himself and begins to swear. And swearing in this context means it's, 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 it's as if he's saying, God is my witness, I do not know this man. I swear on the Bible. I swear on my own life, I do not know Jesus. And this very same man who had personally said to Jesus, if it costs me my life, I will not deny you, now says, I swear on my life, I do not know Jesus. Verse 72. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Here is Peter. Having stood at the pinnacle, seeing Jesus in a glorified state at the Mount of Transfiguration, here is Peter who had stood next to Jesus and sworn his devotion and his love to him. Here is Peter who had said, you are the Messiah, the one true Son of God. Here's Peter who said, to whom else would I possibly even go? You have the words of eternal life. That very same Peter in this moment denies Christ and he weeps bitterly. He's denied his best friend, his Savior, and his Lord. And I want you to stop and think for a minute at this particular point, what actually is the difference between Peter and Judas? I mean, perhaps, perhaps Peter didn't take money to betray, to betray Jesus like Judas did. But he certainly stood by while all of these things were happening to Jesus and was unwilling to stand with him. In this text, he denies him outright See, the truth of the matter is there is virtually no distinction between the person of Peter and the person of Judas at this moment. 
Both have done tremendous damage and harm to their Lord. Both have gone back on oaths and promises and personal devotion that they had pledged to Jesus. And you'll remember that after betraying, after betraying Judas, Judas, or betraying Jesus, rather, Judas Iscariot is so stricken with guilt, he realizes in a moment of clarity that someone who is actually innocent is about to be killed, is in the process of being crucified. And in that moment, he's so overwhelmed that he goes out and hangs himself. Intense remorse but no repentance. But we know, because we know the rest of the story in the New Testament, we know that Peter's story continues into the book of Acts. We know about his exploits. We know about the things that come of him later in his life. So what actually made the difference between Peter and Judas? How does, how does Peter possibly come back from this? Well, you'll remember that I started by saying that Peter's life could be categorized into three distinct acts. The first, his early life and his occupation. The second, the call to become a disciple. But I never mentioned the third. And we're going to find the third here in this text. You'll remember that back in verse 28, after Jesus prophesied about Peter's denial, and Peter then responds with his insistence that he would follow Jesus, Peter says, no, you actually will deny me, but... After I am raised up, verse 28, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And to find the beginning of Peter's third act, we actually have to jump forward to Mark 16. I'll read it for you. You can turn there if you like. But here's what it says, beginning in verse 5. After the crucifixion, the women go to the tomb where Jesus is buried, and here's what it says. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man, an angel, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now notice this. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now imagine if you're Peter, if we could skip forward two chapters in his life, imagine after going through this denial, after going through this betrayal, the heartache that he must have felt. And there's a portion of the Lucan account of this where as, as Peter is in the process of denying Jesus for the third time, as the rooster crows, according to Luke's account, Peter looks over at Jesus, and as Jesus is being beaten nearly to death, he looks up and makes eye contact with Peter. And it's at that moment in the Lucan account that, that Peter begins to weep. And Jesus, Jesus didn't look in, into Peter's eyes in that moment with disappointment or sadness or anger or frustration. He looked at him with forgiveness. And so imagine being Peter sitting there knowing that your Savior has now been dead for three days and into the room comes these women and they're, they're yelling that Jesus' body is gone, that he's been risen and that they were personally instructed by an angel to come to the disciples and to Peter. 
Imagine how it must have hit his ears in that moment, the sense of affirmation, the sense of, the sense of reconciliation that washes over his soul in this moment. And so now, again, the tears begin to flow, this time not out of sadness, but out of joy. See, the truth of the matter was, long before Peter had failed, Jesus knew he was a failure. Jesus knew he was going to turn away. Jesus knew that he was going to abandon him. But that didn't stop Jesus from loving him. And so when Jesus prophesied in verse 28 of chapter 14, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, he was signaling to Peter, though he didn't even realize it, forgiveness is yours Forgiveness awaits you. Though you abandoned me, I have not abandoned you. And in this very moment, you see Jesus. You see in him the love of the father for the prodigal son. You see him running to embrace Peter. Before Peter could even ask for pardon. Forgiveness had been promised to Peter before he had even set his mind to sin. Think about that. Think about the implications of that for your life. That when Jesus went to the cross, he went for people, for people who were just like Peter. He went to the cross for failures and for deniers and for rebels, and for rejects. Jesus took the abuse of Peter saying, I never knew him, so that Jesus would never have to say to Peter, depart from me, I never knew you. And he promises the very same thing to you today. Think about the implications of what it means that before you even sin, forgiveness has already been purchased. That forgiveness is not something that we earn. It's not something that we gain. It's not favor that we can muster. It's not through acts of penance or acts of religiosity. No, forgiveness is something that was purchased once and for all at the cross. As we talked about a few weeks ago, that when Jesus went to the cross, he was dying for for you 2,000 years ago. How many of your sins had you committed 2,000 years ago? None. And yet at the cross, in that moment, all of those sins are paid for eternally. That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God can take your sin and remove it from him as far as the east is from the west. And the realization of Jesus' faithfulness changes everything for Peter. The Peter you see from that day forward is a completely different man. Yes, parts of his personality are still there, right? He doesn't become a whole different person in personality, but rather God uses his personality towards a much more effective end. So you still see bold Peter. But that boldness is rooted in the humility of the cross. You still see courageous Peter. But that courage is no longer found in the depth of his own own personality and 
and what it is that he can muster up. No, now it's rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that's been purchased on his behalf, and it changes the rest of his life. Peter preaches at the day of Pentecost. He starts the church in Jerusalem. He becomes a fervent evangelist for the gospel. He trains missionaries and pastors. He becomes a prolific writer and apologist. So much so that according to tradition, at the end of his life, Peter was arrested under the rule of Nero. You'll remember that Nero was an incredibly cruel man, particularly to the Christians. And that Peter was going to be crucified for being one who proclaimed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And instead of running as he had when he saw Jesus being mistreated and on his way to the cross, Peter in that moment says, I am not even worthy to die the same death that my Savior did. So will you crucify me upside down? That is a courage unlike anything we've seen from Peter. And instead of saying, I refuse to suffer even even in the opinion of a servant girl, Peter says, I count it a privilege to suffer on behalf of my Savior. See, it's only when you come face to face with the ugliness and the darkness and the brokenness of your own sin that you will be ready to come face to face with the beauty of God's grace. And this is the same kind of grace with which Jesus approaches you. A grace full and free that renews and enlivens and gives a new birth to your heart and your soul. And it's worth remembering at this point once again that Peter himself provided this source material to Mark. And you have to wonder if as they were having these conversations, maybe on one of their, one of their missionary endeavors as, as Peter pulls aside this young man, Mark, and begins to tell him stories about all of these adventures that he had with Jesus and all of, the, all of the times they had together and the amazing miracles, and then he begins to include these stories about his own failures. You have to wonder if Mark at some point said to Peter, are you sure you want me to include all of this in what I'm writing? Because it makes you look terrible. It makes you look terrible. And perhaps Peter responds with a wry smile in that moment and says, oh yes, put it in. Because while it makes me look terrible, it also goes to show what an amazing Savior we have. See, the truth is the same failure for which we remember Peter is the same failure that God himself chooses to forget. We think of Peter and we can't help but think about all the flubs and all the moments of failure and all the doubts, and of course this denial. But do you understand that when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, as Martin Luther described it, that great exchange happens where all of your sin, past, present, and future, was put onto Jesus Christ's body, and he paid the eternal penalty for it. At the very same moment Jesus Christ gave you his righteousness, he gave Peter his righteousness. So that now when God looks at Peter, he doesn't see the failures and he doesn't see the brokenness and he doesn't see the denials. What he sees is his son. 
What an amazing promise that is. And do you understand as well that if Peter's actions didn't undo the love of Jesus, there is nothing that could have? And we have such a hard time believing that. How could God love me? How could he forgive me? Do you know how broken I am? Do you know how much I've failed? Do you know how much I've chased religiosity trying to find favor? And in doing so, insulted the death of Jesus Christ? Or do you understand how much I have chased my own pleasure and my own joy and my own happiness and I've been involved in all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of sin? No loving God could ever actually love me. Do you understand that Peter denied Jesus Christ in his moment of need and that his forgiveness was already guaranteed by Jesus? It is a transformational understanding. It's something that we give far too short shrift to. And so the invitation of this text, particularly as we look forward to Mark chapter 15 and the beginning of the resurrection story, the the invitation of this text is to respond to the grace of Jesus that has been extended to you. That there's nothing left for you to do that Christ has done it all and that our hope and our confidence and our joy is in him and that our courage and our bravery and our boldness for what the Christian life is supposed to be comes from him. Brothers and sisters, may we receive the loving grace that he extends with the pride of our heart that keeps his grace at bay crumble underneath the analysis of this text? And would we begin to live in the acceptance that he's already provided? That is Christ's hope for your life today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you once again for your goodness. God, we see your provision in a thousand ways. Though we often don't even recognize it as your provision. We've seen it not only as a church, but we've seen it as individuals. And God, we thank you for the reminder of this text that though we are incapable of doing what it is that we ought to do, that you have done everything that we needed at the cross and in your resurrection. Would we live in utter confidence that the Christian life to which you, in, in, in which you have imparted to us, that we have everything that we need already for that life? Would we press in moments of doubt? Would we press into the promises that you've given us, the promises of forgiveness and the promises of assurance? God, would you keep us from the arrogance and the pride that would think that we can do this on our own? And to the extent that we have those pillars of pride built up and constructed in our hearts, would you crush them with the understanding of our own neediness and our own sin, not to leave us there in our brokenness, but that we might find restoration and reconciliation in the grace that Christ provided. So God, be with us individually in our understanding of these things and renew our minds that we might live bold, confident lives to your glory and for our joy. And it's in your name that we pray.
Amen.